the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And dare we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax. But buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old North State. Welcome to another edition of Civitalk. Today, early voting started across North Carolina. We've got feedback and we're going to talk about the governor's debate between Dan Forrest and the incumbent governor, Roy Cooper. A little bit of commentary on the Amy Comey Barrett hearings. And Freedom Rankings, we have Leah Byers here to talk. She's sitting in for Brooke today. She's going to talk about the Freedom Rankings at Civitas, what they mean, how they can be useful for you. And if we have time, we'll discuss a little bit of the Cal Cunningham scandal that has shaken up the Senate race here in North Carolina. Leah, how's it going today? It's going really well, working from home still, as you know. So uh, forgive me if we have any, you know, the dog making an appearance. I know that's kind of becoming the new norm these days. No, people like dogs, so I think that would probably help the podcast if if they hear from your dog. Okay, yeah, Tucker can be the guest if he starts yes, talking. I met Tucker the first time the other day. Very, very sweet boy. Yeah. Um, just such a good dog, so that's always encouraging when uh, you can go to work and, and see a good dog. Yeah, he's a good boy, and yeah, I wish we could. Uh, he's, he's been my little co-worker for the past seven or eight months so. he was very, he was good at like guarding you know yeah. i feel like in, in this sort of like insecure age we we live in it's good to have a dog around who's protective he is so let's let's just real briefly early voting one of the funniest things and you and i were just briefly talking about this before we went on air is we'll see on twitter all the pictures of early voting and sometimes you know people assume that just this massive line means their candidate's going to win or there's some other candidates going down. And that's just kind of a funny observation that I have, um, you know, because I can remember from 2016, a lot of people standing in line, uh, especially in Michigan from some people I talked to, I used to live in Michigan and they said, Oh, Trump's going to get his butt kicked because of the people that are standing on in line. And uh, you know, that's not necessarily always a good gauge. Of course, Trump ended up barely winning that state. And then of course won the presidential election as well. So um, just do you have any observations or thoughts about early voting? I mean, I have tons. I would love to go back to a one day, one vote model, but that's a little bit different discussion. But what kind of observations do you have, Leah? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, North Carolina is such a purple state that you, you can't know. And there's plenty of people, as we know, that split their ballot. So they're not voting for all one party. And, you know, last year that helped push uh, Governor Cooper over the finish line. Those people that voted for Trump at the top of the ticket and then voted for Roy Cooper. So, yeah, I wouldn't make any kind of assumptions. I mean, it depends on where you are uh, in the county. You know, if you're in a, a super blue part of a city, you know, maybe you can make that kind of assumption. Or if you're in a very red county, uh, you know, maybe maybe you can make that assumption. But, yeah, in somewhere that is, you know, not one of the two extremes, you, uh, I don't think turnout is guaranteed for anyone at this point. And I think a lot of our races are going to be very, very close this year. Yeah, and when I see somebody, like in my county, when I see somebody pulling up to the polls in their um, monster truck with eight huge uh, Trump flags, um, I assume that they're probably voting for Trump. But outside of that, you know, you can't make assumptions in, in, in many instances, especially a lot of these counties in North Carolina where it's just very split. Um, you, you've got a lot of counties and a lot of precincts that are, are going to be very even. So 
it's just kind of funny to, to observe that. And, um, It'll be interesting to see, too, how um, just energetic the stream of voters are for early voting and, and some of these lines we see. I mean, I plan on voting Election Day, and uh, last time I did that, there really wasn't a wait. It was kind of nice. I just went in, went out, and it was quick. Yeah, I've seen that, actually, on social media today. Like, today and the last Saturday of early voting are the two busiest days. So if you want to not have a line, Election Day could actually be a better bet. So let's transition, Leah, to this governor's debate that many of us, um, if you're listening to this now, it was last week, but we saw it last night between Dan Forrest and Governor Roy Cooper. What were your early impressions? I mean, just from me, um, Roy Cooper did so bad against Governor McCrory four years ago. I think they had two debates, um, not three, but I think it was two. And uh, I thought... Cooper did better this time around, and I thought Dan Forrest did really well, too. It was just nice to see a debate that was an actual debate, unlike the presidential debate. But what kind of observations did you have or just thoughts uh, on that debate last night? Yeah, I think the candidates did a really good job of staying in the lines. They didn't try to bring up past issues in, in future time slots or anything like that. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I think Roy Cooper did better than I thought that he was going to. Uh, I think his team prepped him very well. There was one question in particular where I think he did go off script, and you could tell he was flustered. Um, otherwise, it was clear that he was working with talking points, but a lot of them, and he had memorized them very well and, and rehearsed. Um, uh, the one where he you know, went off the script, in my opinion, was when he was talking about corporate tax incentives. Uh, and Dan Forrest kind of called him on his hypocrisy of saying uh, he was accusing Forrest of supporting tax breaks over, you know, investment in, you know, X, Y, Z and state government, public education. And Forrest kind of said, well, you're OK with tax incentives. And Cooper was trying to defend that uh, hypocrisy, which is exactly it is a hypocrisy. It's pretty hard to defend. And you could tell he didn't do a good job. Um, he said, you know, well, this is tied to jobs and it kind of ignores the fact that across the board tax breaks are also tied to job increases. So he kind of, uh, in my opinion, didn't provide a good answer to that. But yeah, when it comes to, you know, the first part of the debate was all coronavirus. And if you think about it, he's had eight months of working through these talking points and being drilled on how to talk about this issue. So I think that the beginning of the debate, I think Cooper did better than Forrest because he was clearly... Uh, had more material to work with. And I think part of that is just he's had eight months of press conferences to practice. That's a very good point. And I, I noticed some of the um, reporters in North Carolina, some of them maybe didn't know it was their only debate and some of them wanted more. I kind of had that feeling too, because it was only an hour. Uh, it seemed like it went lightning quick. And I think that was one of the things that, I was kind of hungry for more. I wanted to see more argument, more more topics discussed. There were several topics. I thought maybe the misuse of uh, uh, North Carolina transportation funds would have been an important topic. Maybe the pension system. There were, there were a lot of things that just weren't addressed in this debate. So I was kind of hungry for more. I don't know if you had that feeling at all. Yeah, they spent a lot of time on coronavirus. And I think, you know, like I said, we've just been talking about this for so long. And it is important, but at the same time, like Cooper faced unique decisions at the beginning of the pandemic. But now that we're so far in, you can have a better understanding of like what you would do in the future. It's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, so I don't want to try to do that. And I think Forrest would be wise not to try to do that. But um, 
yeah, I think, you know, we've learned our lessons and, and we know what we're going to do going forward, but that's not the only policy issue facing our state, especially going forward in 2021. I think most experts expect Cooper to win. Um, that's not in doubt. The polling has continually showed Cooper ahead by at least, you know, there's, there's been some tightening, um, as we've all expected to, but I think most people expect Cooper to win. What is, what has to happen for Dan Forrest to, to win the governorship in here in North Carolina? I mean, what, what in your mind do you think has to happen here? Yeah, I think if Dan wins, it's a true um, David and Goliath situation if you're looking at money and if you're looking at earned media. So Cooper, as I said, has had eight months of press conferences. This is free press coverage for him. He's been in the news. He's been on people's uh, social media feeds through no effort of his own for the past eight months. People know his name now which was not the case uh, two years ago, you know, and he had been in office for two years. We did polling and about a third of people that we asked couldn't name the governor. Now I would guess that number is probably below 10% or maybe even lower. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, if, but Dan's strength has never been fundraising, has never been, um, you know, the media, he's too socially conservative, I think, for them to give him a fair shot. And he knows that. And so his strength has always been grassroots, um, and to some degree trying to appeal to sort of common sense. Like, I think he missed a real opportunity last night to not point out that Cooper is a career politician, whereas he's... Yeah, he did that once. He, yeah. he said that, you know, that Cooper had been in Raleigh for like 20-something, 26 years. Okay. So there was one moment that he did that. But you're right. I mean, I think that should have been a, a, more of an overarching theme from Forrest that uh, last night. He should have pointed that out more, that... You know, I don't even think, and I could be wrong here, and but at, at any rate, it's been a long time, but I, I don't know if Cooper has had a job in the private sector ever. I don't know I mean, that either because he, he started out in the state house in the 80s and then moved over to the Senate uh, pretty quickly thereafter. But he had, you know, he graduated from Chapel Hill. I don't think there was a lot of time in between when he graduated from law school and when he started serving in the state house. I'm not right, sure for the time. Right. And I, I'm sure he, he, he has done some law work, but you know, just in general, there, at least for decades, I don't think he's done anything in the private sector. And I think that would have been um, important for Forrest, especially with the coronavirus. He did make the points that, you know, Cooper didn't understand what was going on in businesses, but I think he could have tied that together a little bit better, if that makes sense. No, I completely agree. And I've seen people make the argument with Biden and Trump that Biden has more supporters, but Trump supporters are more fired up. I honestly think Dan Forrest could be a similar situation where Cooper probably has more, but Forrests are more passionate. I don't know anyone who's a diehard Roy Cooper fan. People will vote for him, but no one is like, you know, he's not their favorite politician. He doesn't blow up on social media in the same way. Um, so well, he's very popular. He's very popular with the North, a lot of the North Carolina media. So yeah, I, mean, the media. I, I would say they are big fans of Roy Cooper. I've never seen a governor covered with more kid gloves. Um, Cause I've lived in a lot of different States. I've lived in, you know, Michigan, Mississippi, Kentucky, and uh, in other States, but I was younger then, but I don't think I've ever witnessed a governor kind of covered with, with more soft coverage than Cooper. I mean, you've got kind of, if you ever question a reporter on social media about Cooper, they get really aggressive. If you, you know, say something bad about him at times. So yeah. it's just, just an interesting observation. And I don't know why he's so popular with the media because he's kind of a, a humdrum guy who, 
occasionally shows his nastiness um, and tries to hide his ideology to some degree. So I don't understand. I mean, his personality is not great. He's certainly a skilled politician in the way that he's, you know, risen through the ranks in North Carolina. But I don't get why there's so much love for him. And I think some of it may have been the HB2 stuff because they were so they were so invested, um, you know, because there's a lot of to be honest, be, be clear here. There's a lot of media who are, who are very socially liberal and they saw HB2 as, as a way to kind of turn their state back. And for them, it was like this this personal attack almost or, you know, North Carolina is not this progressive paradise that they want it to be. And, um, you know, that was latching themselves to Cooper, uh, I think, really was important to them to kind of show the country that we are this progressive state and we have this sort of progressive streak in us that some states in the South don't have. I think you're exactly right. I think Cooper is kind of perfect from the media perspective because he is what they are. You know, they come across as moderate, but then their policies are actually pretty progressive. Um, Cooper isn't isn't uh, vocally progressive enough to be to get the criticism from the purple state of North Carolina. But he, uh, his policy record speaks for itself that he tends to go more to the left than he would have voters believe. I think the media is the exact same way. You know, they that's come an, across as the middle, but they actually support, you know, decently far left. That's a key point, I think, about when, when you study Cooper, because I heard people say he's moderate. And I think there's a perception still out there that he's kind of this moderate Democrat. But you can't name one issue. This is not true of some other Democrat governors, uh, certainly John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, who's pro-life and uh, diverges from his party on several issues. He's the governor of Louisiana. Um, Cooper, I can't name one issue. So Leah, I, I point this out on the radio. I'll, anytime I do a radio interview, I'll ask the host, can you name one issue that Governor Cooper diverges from the National Democratic Party on? So I mean, I'll ask you the same question, Lee. I, I don't know. And I haven't heard anybody bring up an issue where he kind of diverges from the National Party on. No, I can't. I can't think of one either. Um, and, you know, I've tried to in the past, um, you know, we, we provide nonpartisan coverage. So we tend to criticize Cooper for his progressive policies. And so in my brain, I've been thinking, like, what can we congratulate? What does he do well? And there really isn't <laughs> isn't any conservative stances that he has that I've been able to see in, in his uh, term as governor. No. So. Uh, let's just transition. I mean, I, the one thing I'll say just about Forrest and his chances, if Trump is not behind in the polls in North Carolina, which many polls suggest now, at least a few points, but he just has an overwhelming surge of support. I think that'll be a big boon uh, for Dan Forrest. And I don't think Cooper is going to get quite 10% of the Trump vote this time. Could be wrong. Uh, and if I am, I'll admit it. But I do think that um, he's just not going to get quite that as much that much this time. So that would be a big boon for Forrest. So let's transition to the Amy uh, Coney Barrett hearings. Any just anything pop out to you? We won't talk long about this, but I think uh, listeners will be interested. Uh, there were a couple things for me. Of course, the uh, Hirano, the senator from Hawaii, who asked if she had ever sexually assaulted anybody. And in fairness, she set up that question. Uh, basically saying, I'm going to ask every nominee of that. So she she was fair. I mean, she did ask every nominee. But, you know, I thought it was a little bit silly, given uh, her background and her family life and, and things like that. But uh, is there anything that popped out to you in those hearings? Well, obviously, the moment that broke the Internet has been her holding up the blank notepad. 
Um, and I, I got chills when I saw that clip for the first time because it was just such a a testament to her intellect, to her capabilities, uh, and her qualifications to be up for this role that she is up for. Um, you know, those uh, senators had pages and pages of notes, and really, she was probably the, arguably the smartest person in the room. So I thought that was just a true testament to the, to the quality of her nomination. And, um, you know, I'm not someone who, some I, I know RBG was kind of a popular <laughs> Supreme Court justice, which is unusual. And I'm not someone who typically does things like that, but I might be a fan of uh, Amy Coney Barrett. She, her intellect, you're right. I mean, you pegged it, is astounding. And I kind of had high hopes for her. I mean, she's a law professor. She's a federal judge. She's been a law professor. And, um, just the way that she's able to cite case law. Uh, she didn't get to answer tons of questions because a lot of these senators were just up there giving monologues for their own political spiels, but um, and you know, clips so they can have in fundraising videos and, and fundraising efforts. But the way that she's able to cite case law, the way that she understands and knows the Constitution, the way that she's comfortable in her originalist views, uh, which reflect uh, the late Antonin Scalia. Um, was just impressive. So I found her to be uh, somebody who not only is a great nominee, but would make a great judge just because of her, her legal mind. And I was just impressed. I mean, I thought even though the Kavanaugh hearings were weird because they got totally derailed by what I, in my opinion, were, were baseless accusations for political purposes, these hearings were much better. And I think as a legal scholar, she's light years ahead of Brett Kavanaugh. And I'm not saying Brett Kavanaugh's Joe Schmo or anything like that. Just from my own perception, when I kind of like just watch the hearings, we didn't get into much of the legal philosophy quite as much with Kavanaugh. So it may not be comp- completely fair to make those comparisons. But to me, she just is this bright light of, of a legal scholar that is just, just overwhelms you, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I think... In terms of temperament, um, you know, she might be a perfect justice in that regard where she she does keep the law at the forefront. And she said, like, I'm here to rule on the law. And it's we have a law, um, a government of laws, not of men. You know, she she just laid out her philosophy in, in a way that was very precise and confident. Um, and yeah, I love to see that. I think she's a perfect choice. Yeah, and I think she'll be confirmed by the Senate. That looks to be kind of a fait accompli at this point. The Republicans feel like they have the votes. So that uh, if, if we go by Lindsey Graham's measure, it's going to happen on October 26th, which is just a little bit more than a week before the election, which would be pretty astounding in this political environment. But if you have the votes and, and uh, the Constitution backs you up, there's no reason you can't do that. And so it'll be fascinating to watch just uh, if anything else comes out of this and if there's any sort of meltdowns, riots, or, but maybe not with the election so close and, and Democrats very confident of, of a big uh, win in the presidency and potentially um, overturning the U.S. Senate. So we'll see how all this unfolds. But uh, let's jump into the freedom rankings. That's one of the reasons you're on here today, Leah. Uh, let us know about the Civitas freedom rankings. Why are they important and when are they coming out? Right. So these are our Civitas Action Freedom Rankings. So uh, you won't find them on our traditional Civitas site. They're on our sister site of Civitas Action. Uh, And these are rankings that we have put out every year based on the legislative session at the state level. 
And so we basically choose key votes as they come up for the House and Senate on bills related to uh, conservative or freedom-minded issues. So these can be related to limited government, um, so like reducing taxes. It can be about individual liberty. Uh, it can be about a number of you know fr uh, free market issues. Those are typically the ones that we try to target, kind of the key votes in how legislators uh, feel about freedom and how they defend your freedom or work to expand it. And that's what these rankings, you know, we hope they convey to voters and to citizens. Um, and we do have an objective system where if you cast a, a vote for freedom, um, you get scored for that. And if you count against that, that counts against you. If you have a, an excused absence, then it doesn't count either way. Um, and so this year, we're releasing our 2020 uh, legislative rankings based on the short session. But as everyone knows, coronavirus messes up everything. Um, so this year, we actually only had half of the votes that we had from the last legislative short session. We had four votes in the Senate and five votes in the House. And um, in each case, I believe there was a veto override, too. So it's really the same vote twice, the same bill twice. Um, not that everyone voted the same, but but still, we wanted a little bit more. It's a good score for this year, but we wanted to provide um, citizens with a better understanding of how their legislator performed. And we didn't feel like 2020 was necessarily the best measure um, for the reasons I just listed. And so we're releasing the 2020 scores. But this year, for the first time ever, we're also doing a biennium score. So our legislative session is actually a two-year session. The long session and the short session are technically uh, the same. Um, so it's the same members uh, and the same makeup of the General Assembly. And so we just took the two years and combined them into this aggregated score just so you can get kind of a more complete picture uh, with more freedom votes. And so both of those are going to be available uh, on the Civitas Action site uh, next week. So by the time this podcast is released, they should be up. Can you give us a preview of any rock stars? Um, I'm not going to ask you about the the you know the non-heroes the zeros so to speak but can you give us a preview of a few, few of the rock rock stars on that um scorecard sure so uh the only person to have a perfect score for both years was representative keith kidwell and this is his first uh term so for the first ever biennium score he's the only perfect score top ranking uh, House member or just legislator in general for his very first term in office. So congratulations to Representative Kidwell. That's truly a, an impressive feat. Do you um, know, I've heard of him, but do you know him? Have you met him, talked to him? I just don't know him. No, I have not met him. Um, he tends to uh, obviously vote very conservatively. Um, so yeah, you know, hopefully we can have a chance in the future to, to see more, uh, Obviously, as a freshman, you know, there are certain limitations on you're not maybe running as much legislation or anything like that. But maybe he's going to be one of our emerging conservative leaders for the state. And we'd love to, to see that. Um, so for 2020, there were three Republicans that tied um, for the top spot. The other two, I believe, were um, let me not misspeak on this. Um, and the top uh, but the top senator was actually for the first time ever. So the top Repu the top. Um, House members were Larry Pittman and David Rogers out of Cabarrus and Rutherford counties. Um, and then the top senator was actually a Democrat. And this is the first time a Democrat has been the top scoring um, on the freedom rankings, with the exception of there was one uh, House member in 2016 that had some health problems. And so she was only scored on one vote. 
So she technically has a top rank, but it's a very unique circumstance. So this is the first time that a Democrat has scored the top uh, rank in a true sense of the word. And he voted on, um, you know, all four votes that were graded in the Senate, and he voted not for freedom in one case. So he had a score of 75, but that was the top vote in the Senate for 2020. So I thought that was interesting and a testament to the fact that these are truly uh, nonpartisan rankings. They just grade people on their votes. That's very informative. Thank you. Let's transition to this 2020 campaign. What's going on? I mean, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. What's going to happen in North Carolina? Do you have any expectations to on the way things might be shaken up? I mean, I'm really following these judicial races a lot because I think they're obviously very important. It seems like one of the frustrating things about North Carolina is more and more stuff gets kind of moved out of the legislative branch and into the courts. So, um, you know, from a personal political standpoint, I'm very kind of invested in these judicial races, but I don't know how they're going to go. I mean, you know, I see some of the polling and stuff, but it's just hard to kind of gauge um, how that's going to go. I did read some interesting things, Leah, that people that vote in person are less, are more, I'm sorry, more likely to have a little bit of ballot roll off than if you were voting at home, which makes sense because you have more time with your ballot. You can research, you can play on the computer and look up people. But I just thought that was interesting. And I think probably more people that are conservative or on the right are going to be voting in person um, than than not. So, you know, there's a potential for a little bit more ballot roll off there. But I don't know if you have any just sort of general expectations for North Carolina in 2020. Yeah, that is interesting on the judicial races, because my initial thought would be um, if older people are more likely to vote Republican, I could see them going further down the ballot. Um, potentially than younger people. Um, And so our listeners might remember that in 2018, we had a a Supreme Court race and it was won by Democrat Anita Earls. But a lot of people think that was because there were two Republicans on the ballot. And so the Republican votes uh, got split between those two. If I'm not mistaken, if one of the Republicans had retained all of the votes that went for Republicans, I believe they would have beaten Anita Earls. Um, and I, I could be mistaken on that, but, but I think, um, yeah, I think all the races are going to be close this year. And actually Andy Jackson, our colleague at the Civitas Institute has an article up on our website called state legislative to, uh, races to watch. Um, and so he's identified 17 house races and, um, five Senate races that he thinks are going to be, you know, the closest. And this is based on our Civitas partisan index, which basically looks at past, voter data to try to quantify um, how each legislative district leans Republican or Democrat. And so these are races that are rated as toss up on the Civitas Partisan Index. So I think that that's a good place to start if you're interested in, you know, what are the races to watch going to be? Yeah. And District 119, Joe, Sam Queen and Mike Clampett, this is like their fifth rematch or something. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of rematches this year. So there's several other on here, too. Um, Bill Brawley and Rachel Hunt are on the list. They faced off in 2018 with Rachel Hunt, uh, who was the daughter of former Governor Hunt. Um, she spent like $90 a vote, uh, yeah. Andy pointed out in his article. I thought that was really fascinating. There were a lot. There was a lot of money spent in that, and it was still super close. So, um, you know, with Trump back at the top of the ticket, some of these Republicans that were defeated in um, 2018 might have a better chance, and especially because some of them were elected in 2016 as well when, when Trump was at the top. 
Um, another thing to consider is that redistricting has happened. Um, it's supposed to happen every 10 years, but as we know in North Carolina, things are challenged in court and <laughs> we've had to do redistricting so much that it's just ridiculous. But so um, some incumbents, you know, are in a lot closer races than they used to be, or maybe even at risk of losing their seats. So I think things could potentially get shaken up really in both directions because of that as the General Assembly. Absolutely. No doubt. Uh, we got a couple minutes left, Leah. We're going to get your opinion. You're, you're, uh, you're new since the Cal Cunningham scandal has broke here across North Carolina. Does this, how does this impact him? And um, do you think it will, do you think it's kind of an ending for his, his race, kind of a, 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 you know, a nail in the coffin for him? I don't think so. And I've argued kind of the opposite. The Cal Cunningham is very much alive. That's why you have Governor Cooper continuing to back him and other Democrats across the state and across really the nation. I mean, even uh, the money's still pouring in for, for Cunningham. What are your kind of thoughts on this uh, Senate race, which is I think going to be end up being very close one way or the other? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's over for Cunningham at this point. I mean, obviously the election is still over two weeks away. And so um, anything can happen. I think if Cunningham wins, it will be in spite of himself. Like his, I've seen or listened to um, his interactions with the media in the recent days. At first he was kind of laying low, wasn't talking to anyone. And now his strategy uh, for taking questions about this is just not a winning strategy. But I think his biggest advantage is that a lot of people haven't heard about it or haven't heard about the full extent of it. Maybe they've heard about the text messages. They think they're not too bad, but they haven't heard about the fact that a physical relationship has been confirmed. Uh, we don't know if more mistresses are coming out. He won't, won't answer that question. And there are several investigations against him. Absolutely. And uh, I think you're exactly right on that. I think there's kind of a disconnect with some North Carolina voters. Uh, you know, I've talked to a few people. They didn't even know which uh, candidate was embroiled in the scandal. So there's there's a little bit of a disconnect. And I think, too, with the UCMJ charges, with a lot on the right, are really pushing that Cunningham is going to be prosecuted for this. Or at least, you know, I think the people that are saying he's going to jail are being way, way too hyperbolic. I think what happens usually, I, and I've done military case work for a congressman before, is you usually get a less than honorable discharge. You're separated from the military, which would be very severe. I mean, Cunningham is has kind of staked his whole political fortune on his military service. So that would be really bad for him within itself. But also if he wins, I mean, U.S. senators have a lot of power. They have a lot of influence that I can see him completely kind of, you know, let's be honest, uh, the rules for the average citizen aren't always the same for a U.S. senator. So I could see him kind of finagling himself out of that a little bit as well. So uh, I completely agree. This is definitely not over for Cal Cunningham. I, I do think the Republican Party might be making a little bit of mistake in some of their aggressive pushing messaging on this. Um, you know, I've gotten mailers on it. Uh, some people say they're getting texts. Um, sometimes when someone's juggling hand grenades, you want to keep your distance from them. And so I think by kind of making this overtly partisan could have a blowback effect and, and may coalesce some Democrats back around Cunningham who may have been turned off to him before. So that's something that I think, at least for Republicans, to be concerned about in the way that they manage the scandal and the way that they manage the race, um, thinking it's to their benefit. It may not actually help them and it could actually help unite Democrats to some degree. So I think they have to kind of tread that carefully from a political perspective, but it'll be fascinating to watch. That's Leah Byer. She was in um, co-hosting today for Brooke Medina. I'm Ray Notstein. We really appreciate 
you listening, ncivitas.org is where you can read all of our content. Uh, subscribe to our newspaper. You can get it in your mailbox for free. Just go to ncivitas.org. It's on the front page. And we've got plenty of content written by Leah, written by Andy, written by Brian. Lots of great stuff at ncivitas.org.